Hello and welcome to the Authentic Wednesday podcast. Each week, my guest and I share our vulnerable behind the scenes stories of giving ourselves permission to take off our masks, let go of expectations and embrace our own path of freedom and authentic connection. I'm your host, Bianca Hughes, a lover of authenticity and a licensed professional counsellor in Georgia. Hello and welcome to episode seven of the Authentic Wednesday podcast. Thank you so much for joining me and my guests this week. This week, I have Melissa Coates, who is a therapist specializing in helping clients with issues related to stress, sex, and self-esteem in the Atlanta area. She is 120% in love with her job and considers it an honor and privilege to get to know people and build relationships for a living. She enjoys speaking to people publicly about these issues and training other therapists in matters of anxiety and sex therapy. When she's not pouring her energy into her entrepreneurship, you can usually find her playing with her two sweet dogs, hiking, driving her beloved Jeep, eating tacos, or traveling the globe with her spouse. Her goal is to visit at least six continents. Antarctica is just a bit too cold for her taste. As of now, she has three continents checked off that list, with a fourth coming this fall on her trip to Ecuador. As always, I'm happy when I have my guests on the podcast. And Melissa, I'm just excited that she is here. I've hiked with her. We have um, consulted with one another. And she is just an amazing person. So let's go ahead and get into the conversation. Hello, Melissa, and welcome to the Authentic Wednesday podcast. It is a pleasure having you here today. Thank you, Bianca. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. Good. I'm excited about just you and just who you are as a person and just what we're going to talk about today. I think it's a very special and um, also very touching I know definitely at the end, I'll be having to give you some guys some resources, um, actually probably one of my favorite resources, just because of um, the topic that we'll be talking about a bit later on as we get into this um, topic today. So I always like to ask my guests, what does authenticity mean to you? Uh, Good question. So authenticity, I think, sometimes can be a tricky part of of life Um, just for the reason that sometimes we try to be our most authentic selves and how we present ourselves, or at least I do. Um, And it's it's often difficult in a world where we have um, so much stress to really be able to feel out who you can be authentic with. Um, so I love that you're talking about this subject all the time because I think it's it's super important about how we present ourselves to the world, not only for how the world sees us, but also for um, how we feel about ourselves moving through the world. Uh, so there's been plenty of times in my life where I felt really authentic and it's felt great, where I have felt really authentic and it has not felt so good uh, because it means having the difficult conversation with a friend or it means... Uh, you know, confronting somebody or setting boundaries, and it's painful, but it's still really helpful. And um, and then there's been some times where I haven't been authentic, and it's kind of needed to be the case to protect myself and my own emotions. Um, and then there's just some times where I've been a complete phony, and I didn't like that either. So, um, 
So I love this topic because it's definitely a, a more complicated one, I think, than you know, people say, just be yourself. And it's like, well, there's a little bit more to that conversation. That's so good um, that you say that and you bring up the difficulties of um, authenticity because, you know, I love authenticity, but I totally agree. It is not always easy being authentic because often, depending on, of course, your surroundings, you're normally the odd one out mm-hmm. when you are being authentic. And, and people don't necessarily know what to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're like, what? <laughs> this is strange. So, um, yeah, thank you for that point about the difficulties and the uncomfortable. Because I do think even this whole thing right now on authenticity, like people are really, really encouraged to do it. But yet in doing it, you do feel uncomfortable. So it's something you have to persevere in. Totally agree. Have you always been authentic and um person? Um, I have I, I have actually. Um most of the time I will say, like I said, there are some times where I've been a complete phony. Uh for example, um sometimes when I'm sitting next to somebody on an airplane and they ask me what I do, there are times where I tend to be like, oh, I'm in marketing or I'm in accounting just because <laughs> I don't want to tell people I'm a sex therapist. It gets a whole lot of, um, a whole lot of different reactions. Um, so yeah, there are some times I'm just going to call myself out on that one. Um, but mostly, yes, I have been a pretty authentic person. I was raised in um, a family. My maiden name is actually Jones. And we were encouraged. We were the quintessential keeping up with the Joneses family where we always had to have the mask on. Everything always had to appear perfect to everybody else. um, Even when the, you know, everything was crumbling and falling apart on the inside. And that just really didn't fit for me. Um, I had a really, really hard time in that environment. And I tended to rebel by being authentic and asking for help when I needed it and being angry when I felt angry and crying when I felt like crying. Uh, And that wasn't always greeted with compassion in my family. And that's, um, you know, that's really difficult, especially as a young person. And uh, so when I became a therapist, (laughs) um, which is the exact opposite of (laughs) putting on the mask, and uh, we encourage people to take off the mask and talk about their real feelings, it felt like a really great way for me to um, honor that part of myself that needed to be more than just the, the mask and putting on the face that everything is perfect. Wow. It's funny. I do think Authentic people are often the rebel people. <laughs> They're rebel. What was that like? You know, being in a situation with your family and you weren't allowed to be authentic. You weren't allowed to, in essence, be Melissa. Mm-hmm. How did that feel? Uh, it was difficult. So most of the year I lived with my mom, which I know we'll be talking about her a little bit today too, and the topic that we have, but most of the year I lived with my mom and she really encouraged me to be my authentic self. Um, she was a lovely, lovely woman who would, uh, you know, help me experience all different sorts of, um, experiences. Uh, we would travel a lot together. We would go, uh, you know, to church, but we would also, my uncle was a biker. So she would take me when we would go out to biker bars. Like we just, she made sure that I knew that there was 
a lot of opportunities available to me. We would go to the opera at the Fox Theater, and then we would go volunteer at a homeless shelter. Like there was just a range of experiences. And that felt so good to me growing up. As an adult, I definitely appreciate it more now as well. Uh, but then in the summers, I would go and I would I would see my dad and, and my family there. And um, it's a military family. So it you know, was a difficult, difficult situation. Um, that brings its own set of challenges. But since most of the year I was able to be my free authentic self, uh, it was, you know, really lovely and really beautiful, but that wasn't necessarily appreciated in that environment when I would go there. And that was really tough because it was kind of the situation where everyone was expected to, again, put on the mask, fall in line. If you got angry, then, you know, you were wrong or, there was just a lot of um, pushing down those emotions that really are very natural, but uh, having expressing, expressing them and having those emotions was just not as welcomed as it was most of the year when I was with my mom. So it made the dynamic really difficult. Wow. That's Mm -hmm. such a gift that your mom gave you. Mm -hmm. Didn't she? She's left you loads of gifts. Oh, yes. Tons of gifts. Um, Think about her definitely every day. And, uh, you know, I get to, I I think the biggest gift she gave me was the, um, the ability to be curious with people. And part of a big reason why I became a therapist. Wow. Wow. So mom, Mm -hmm. she's not here with us now, is she? She's not. No. How long has it been? Uh, this August was seven years. Um, and she passed away, uh, seven years ago, the day after her 51st birthday it was incredibly difficult and, uh, obviously way too young. Uh, she had cancer and yeah. we were her caregivers. My husband and I were her caregivers for the two years leading up to her death. Um, so lots of ups and downs. There was one point where we thought the cancer was gone and then it came back and we were just crushed. So yeah, so I'm seven years living without her and, uh, it's still hard. It's still it's really so hard. hard. What's mm-hmm. the hardest part for you? Oh, thinking about all the things, uh, two, really two things. Um, thinking about all the things that she's missed and hasn't seen. So one of the, one of the things that makes me the saddest actually is that I have two awesome doggies that I love um, to pieces and she's never met them. And that's really, really sad to me. And, and then of course, thinking about future events that she won't be there for. So I do want children. And if I'm upset that she hasn't met my dogs, you know, it's definitely a thing <laughs> that I and uh, it feels like my kids that I do end up having will have been robbed in a way uh, from not having getting to know her. But we're going to try and uh, help them get to know her as best we can. But, um, but it's not the same. Yeah, yeah, it's not the same. Wow. Grief is a very interesting subject. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to share something. Also, I'm a therapist and um you know, they trained us and taught us the stages of grief. I personally am not a fan of them. I just think grief is such a difficult thing. Some people deal with it immediately. Some people don't deal with it. Some people take years to deal with it. Some people, you know, deal with it in parts that it's so hard to put it into these stages, into, you know, chronological order. And this is what happens. And this is what happens. There's also often 
a culture of you grieve for a bit. There's some cultures where you grieve and you really mourn for a long time. And there's other cultures where you grieve and you go back to work and everything is meant to be okay. And it's just not okay. I know me personally, just realizing the emotional toil and the exhaustion that comes with grief, the pressure that comes with grief. People tell, yeah, people telling you how to deal with grief um, makes it really difficult. And I know that you definitely had a difficult time. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah. So first of all, I'm kind of with you on the five stages of grief. I definitely don't think they're linear. A lot of times my clients ask about that. I describe it kind of like a pinball machine. Um, (laughs) Instead of it being linear, we tend to like bounce back and forth between the stages. And sometimes we stay on, we bounce back more to one than another. Um, And then even when we get to acceptance, there's definitely a chance that we're going to bounce back to sadness every once in a while or whatever. Um, so the metaphor I like to use more, um, than the five stages of being linear is that uh, if my soul is a house, then grief is kind of like a room in my house. You know, if I stay in it all the time, I don't get to enjoy the rest of the house. If I completely shut it off and neglect it, then it starts to have problems and affects the rest of the house. You know, it has a leaky roof or whatever happens. So grief tends to just be a part of my life that that room is there when I need to visit it. Uh, because sometimes we need to go back to our grief and that's okay. So that to me is a much more forgiving way of looking at grief versus I did have a counselor one time after my mom passed who told me where I should be six months after her passing. And I fired him and did not go back to him (laughs) 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 because that just felt so, um, like, like you said, so much pressure. Um, So my journey with it was was quite difficult. We, like I said, I was my mom's caregiver. Uh, right off the bat, she actually got lung cancer, was the first form of cancer that showed up in her body. Okay. And um, there's a lot of stigma around that. Uh, we definitely had to um, deal with people's misconception about lung cancer. And right off the bat, that was really, really difficult because she had never smoked a day in her life. But uh, the assumption was that she had, and so she brought the cancer on herself. Who was Uh, the assumption made by? Oh, lots of people. Um, People at our church, people that we met randomly, you know, family members obviously knew that she wasn't a smoker, but acquaintances, that kind of stuff. It was pretty prevalent. Uh, Wow. Kind of say, oh, what kind of cancer? We'd say lung cancer, and they'd go, oh, and kind of give a look like, well... I guess you kind of brought that on yourself, didn't you? And without really knowing any of the details of what actually happened. Uh, Really, the reality is that lung cancer actually affects a ton of women who have never smoked. And especially women, for some reason, they're finding. And so, but there is no screening for it like there is for other cancers unless you're a smoker. So even in the medical field, there's still a lot of stigma. Anyway, I digress. But we had a difficult time because I think even in the midst of suffering, and I am a therapist, I've seen a lot of suffering, I've been through a lot of suffering. I think in the midst of suffering, people still expect you to suffer well. And that was what was so difficult about our journey was they a lot of people were so uncomfortable with how uncomfortable we were. You know, they were uncomfortable with our sadness. They were uncomfortable with the fact that my mom might not exist in this world at some point. And so a lot of people would try and fix or give us their remedies for cancer. I can't tell you how many times people told her to eat more kale. Um, and (laughs) And she hated kale. So 
that wasn't going to happen. But there was just a lot of expectation on how we were supposed to handle this process. And there were some times where we just couldn't do that. It got too much. What were some of the expectations, whether, you know, if they were implied or not implied? That she would continue treatment no matter what. It's definitely frowned upon when somebody says, I can't continue treatment anymore. It's looked at as selfish. And mm. um, and there was a point where she decided that she couldn't do treatment anymore and wanted to live her life feeling more like herself than trying to fight it. And that was definitely frowned upon. There were times when people would, you know, always constantly, the question we would always get was, how are you doing? How are you doing? And the expectation and their energy coming off of them, you could just tell that they wanted like a positive report. Yeah. And I'll never forget it. One time we were, uh, we were in church and a woman, a lovely woman who had the best of intentions, I'm sure, came up to my mother after a recent chemo treatment and said, Leah, how are you doing? And my mom looked at her and she goes, like, I couldn't wrestle a kitten. Thanks for asking. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's time to go home. <laughs> and that, that was the moment of authenticity. And that was really actually kind of the first breaking point for her where she couldn't keep up the facade of, yeah, this is, you know, all fine. We're doing great. We're moving on. We're progressing. We had really just had a big setback. And so she wasn't feeling like she wanted to give the expected answer. And, uh, this poor woman looked at her with eyes, big wide eyes, like, oh, okay, that's not what she was expecting. But that was the truth. And it embarrassed me at first. And I was really kind of taken aback at my mom's, uh, you know, being so upfront. And then it was actually very freeing for me because I ended up being more authentic through the process as well. Wow. So during part of that process, because of the expectations, did you find yourself being inauthentic? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it was easier sometimes to be inauthentic. Yeah. Uh, we were spending so much time and energy in doctor's offices and with pain management and medication and scheduling people to help with meals and stuff like that. It was one of those things where our, there was so much mental energy taken up that um, to confront somebody sometime and, and give the real answer was just, it was too exhausting. It was too much. We couldn't do it. Um, but we did luckily have quite a few people that we really could count on that they could handle our authenticity. And we were really, really lucky in that sense um, because, you know, we needed support. And at one point we really wanted to do it on our own and just found out that it was quite impossible and we needed a community. What did that community provide you with to enable you to be authentic? Oh, like I said, um, our energy levels were just completely depleted. So anything that our community did for us that helped with the energy levels was just one of those things that felt it, it could have been so simple, just a grocery stop for them. But for us, it was one less thing on the to-do list, which was gigantic. So I, you know, we had one guy, uh, a, a lovely man from our church who one day everything just collapsed. My mom had to have a, a, a radiation treatment where you have the halo on her head and it was super painful and awful. And we came home and the TV was broken. The garage door was broken and my mom's waterbed had leaked. Uh, yeah. She was the only woman left in America with a waterbed. <laughs> <laughs> and 
I'll never forget that day because my poor husband, that was his breaking point and he'd had enough. So he took it out on the waterbed actually. And, and, uh, <laughs> it was, it was quite funny. And the next day, this, this lovely man, we had to go out for another doctor's appointment. By the time we got home, there was a new TV, the garage door was fixed. And somehow he had found somewhere in Atlanta that still sold waterbeds. So, um, you know, oh my gosh, are you serious? Yes, yes. And um, wow. so wow. that kind of support, um, obviously, that was one of the bigger ones that somebody did for us. But everything, I was also in grad school at the time, mind you. So I ended up not being able to go to some of my mom's chemo treatments. And that felt really, really sad for me. And so when people would step up to just go sit with her and play cards with her while she was in her treatments, anything really, really helped us be able to just enjoy our time together. Wow. Wow. The, the importance of community. It's interesting uh, as I continue to have these conversations that how much community is important in helping people be grounded, and be authentic. Yeah. And I actually have um, one more story that I would love to share on that because it shows uh, just the how healing community can be. Like I said, you know, people stepping up to help and take take stuff off of our plate. At one point, I was having to be my mom's nurse and her daughter. And that was a really, really difficult boundary to maintain. Because when I felt like her nurse, I kind of had to shut off feelings of being her daughter and shut off the feelings of, you know, I had to give her shots. And so as a daughter, you don't want to cause your mother pain. As a nurse, you kind of have to sometimes. And that was really painful. So um, it ended up that there was one time where I was just, it was too much. And my stepmother actually came up from Florida and my mother-in-law came from uh, Alpharetta. They are both in the medical field and they came for a whole weekend and stayed and helped me. And I'll never forget uh, looking into my mom's bedroom and my, my mother-in-law was on one side of her and my stepmother was on the other side. And it's lovely that they have had such a good relationship. Um, and, uh, and they were all laughing and I thought, well, how lucky am I that I have three moms in this room, you know, here to support me and to take care of me. And that felt very authentic, um, in the sense that there had been a lot of forgiveness that had happened in that room. There had been a lot of, you know, there were three moms, mother-in-law and a stepmom and my mom. All <laughs> yeah. you can imagine some of the stories that came out of that, <laughs> um, but what led them there was, um, you know, all they all stepped in to help me and work toward the same goal. And that was just incredibly, incredibly touching. Wow. Wow. That is amazing. So how long was it? So it was for two years your mom was ill. Mm-hmm. I had this question. Did you ever get angry at your mom? I always ask people that when it comes <laughs> to grief and all those different, did you ever get angry or feel angry? Oh, yes. Yes, definitely. Um, when she was, when she was alive and in treatment, um, there was a time when her short-term memory got affected and, um, and that was very frustrating for everybody. And I know no, no one more than her. And I was glad that my mom allowed me to be angry with her. She was never the person to say, Oh, anger is bad. Anger is wrong. Um, she was the one to say, let's talk it out. Let's talk it through. And so there were definitely times where we got frustrated. And like I said, our energy levels were completely depleted. So any, you know, we could Mm -hmm. 
stub our toe and all of a sudden the world was ending and we, you know, would start yelling at each other. <laughs> she, was still yelling, she was still yelling at you from her oh, sick bed. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes, definitely. Um, <laughs> and there have been times after her death where I've gotten angry, angry that she's not here. I've had to learn who I am without her. And, you know, as, as much as that's been a really hard process. I don't, I think there are some things that I wouldn't have learned if she were still here. So not necessarily that I'm angry with her about that, but, um, but there have been times where I have gotten angry with her or I've even questioned some of the things that she told me growing up or whatever. And at first that felt like such a huge betrayal to her. I felt like I was just totally ungrateful that, or I, not ungrateful, well, ungrateful to her, but totally doing grief wrong. And because <laughs> um, there's, you know, we all know there's a right and wrong there's way. There's a right to way to do grief, isn't yeah. there? <laughs> there's a right and wrong way to do everything. You know? So it just felt, it did, it felt like the wrong way to do grief. And I just felt like I was completely dishonoring her. And at the same time, she was the one who taught me to be my authentic self. So there's a way that it could also actually be honoring her by living in my authenticity. Yeah, that's a good point. Never thought about it like that. Because I often do hear, whenever I bring that up, I always ask people if they're angry whenever I have clients, you know, because people often don't want to say it because they feel like they, they're betraying, they're, you know, dishonoring. And how could you talk about the dead that way? And so often I feel like if we don't, that kind of creates more grief, mm-hmm. you know, because it, it, it stuffs those feelings. It's unresolved. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And creates that unresolved grief. And that's so beautiful. You were able to kind of work through that. So tell me, so mom's alive and then she passes away. What was that like? That was a really rough experience. Um, I actually don't remember a good portion of the months following her her passing, and that is a um, actually a very vulnerable thing for me to admit. I tended to, you know, I'm I'm a therapist. I understand how the brain works, but still, it's not supposed to happen to you, right? Uh, <laughs> I'm a therapist. I should know better. I shouldn't even have these feelings now. Um, But we definitely, definitely do experience them, which is why I think I can connect with my clients because I have had the feelings, not the same ones as them um, or experience them in the same way, but I've had them. Um, And I used to wonder how it was possible for people to quote unquote, lose time like that. Uh, And it was actually a, a, point of judgment for me in some ways, like not necessarily like, oh, you really should remember, but I just couldn't understand how that happened until I went through it. And there is a about a month missing for me where I, I don't remember anything except for what people tell me about that time. And uh, and I honestly think I needed that. My mom was such a huge force in my life that her not being there just really did not compute in my brain. Um, and I really had to, uh, you know, I needed that period so that I could adjust to that idea. How did you respond from what you do remember? Mm-hmm. Pass away. How did you respond to grief? What was different? What was hard about mm-hmm. that? Um, well, it was 
it, it was such a huge shift. She had been a part of my life every single day since I was born and before that. Um, <laughs> so I, you know, all of a sudden she just wasn't there anymore. And then in the months leading up to her death, not only was she a part of my every day, she was a part of my every hour pretty much. Mm -hmm. So I was constantly with her. I was um, constantly in her presence and then it just stopped. And that was probably the most abrupt shift I've ever felt in my life. Everything is affected by that kind of a shift. Everything changes. Uh, I caught myself, I still catch myself reaching for my phone to call her sometimes. It's just force a habit even seven years later. So it was really, really difficult. It felt like, um, almost like I was trying to move on with my life. Have you ever tried to drive a stick shift when you can't drive a stick shift and you like kind of go and then stop and then get jerked around. And that's, that's what it felt like. Drive one. Oh, well, I can't. (laughs) That's the benefit of being from Europe. Good for you. I I cannot. And so that's what I know what you're talking about. (laughs) So that's what it felt like for me that I was trying to go. I was trying to move forward with my life. And there would just be reminders around every corner that my life was just drastically different. Did you rebel against it being different? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Big time. I think... uh, more internally than, than externally. Um, like I said, there were times where I definitely would pick up the phone to call her or, you know, even found myself heading over to her house sometimes, but that was mostly just my brain trying to catch up with the information. Um, I, I have a large feeling that that time where I don't remember a lot was me rebelling and, um, and saying, Nope, this can't be real. Um, my, my denial, my denial really kicked in in a lot of ways. And I think I needed it for, for a period of time because it's way too difficult for me to remain in the sadness or the bargaining or, you know, whatever it happens to be. It's sometimes we need a break. I think denial gets a bad rap, yeah. but sometimes we need it. Oh, so are you saying that denial for you was a break? Mm-hmm. Yep. That's an interesting yeah. perspective. Mm-hmm. It was a break. Again, not somewhere I wanted to live forever. I didn't want to be in my room, in my room, in my house, in denial for forever. Uh, and I think that in some instances, it was a break. Wow. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love that perspective. Did you um, find that you were still wearing a mask? Um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, again, just like people had expectations of how we were suffering in her illness, they had expectations of how I would handle it afterwards. Um, not everyone there were, I had a lot of support and, um, a lot of people who were really understanding about how, uh, different it is when, you have like, again, again, you have somebody who's a part of your life every day. And then all of a sudden they're not there. A lot of my emotions didn't make sense to people. Um, I had a lot of anxiety. I had a lot of fear. That was my kind of foundation person in my life. And she was the, the rock that I had kind of built my life on. And then she was gone. 
And I had a lot of anxiety about that happening again with somebody else that I loved. And of course, that felt very irrational to other people. And it probably was very irrational in the moment. And it was my process and my journey. And so there were a lot of people who really just didn't understand uh, what, how complicated feelings can be in grief, and um, especially if it didn't make sense to them. So I definitely felt like I had a mask on in some ways where I was just going through the motions until they meant something again. Um, yeah. yeah. Did you ever just decide, you know what, even to the people who didn't understand that, you know what, I'm just going to feel these emotions and if you don't understand them, then you don't understand them. Did you get to that point? Oh, yeah. It was like my mom with the kitten moment. I can't wrestle a kitten, you know. I, I definitely had a few few of those moments as well. Um, I uh, ended up having to leave uh, the church that I grew up in because I was having panic attacks when I would go to our church, um, which was where my, my mom and I had spent a lot of time together. And that was a very unpopular decision. And uh, Thank goodness my mom knew me well enough that before she died, she actually gave me permission. She said, Melissa, if you can't go back, I understand. And I said, what do you mean? That's our home. That's where we've always been. Of course I'm going to go back. And then she probably knew me better than I did because I was like, oh, I get it. Now I know what you mean. Um, but that was a very unpopular decision. And, um, you know, I, I definitely got a few people who disagreed with me. And I had to say, you know what? This is, this is my, my process and this is what I have to do. Did you ever question your decision? Oh, yeah. I question my decisions all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy making a decision, is it? No, no. And I'm a, quite an ambivalent person. Um, so I tend to do the tug of war between two options in my head whenever I'm trying to make a decision. I've definitely had to learn how to make friends with my ambivalence. Um, and... When I was in that process of grief, it was actually a lot easier because, again, I didn't have the energy for the tug of war. Um, I didn't have the energy to be really anything but authentic about what was going on. What was helpful? I know the people in the community were helpful. You did say you fired your therapist. (laughs) (laughs) I got another one. Don't worry. (laughs) Um, Anything else that helped you? Chewing mm-hmm. um, that, yeah. yeah um, the grief pops up because you know I don't want to say during that grief period because, like you said, it does come back up. But in that time, and then you know going forward, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, what has helped me the most has definitely been the community of understanding people. But besides that, it's helped to hear other people's stories who've gone through this. It has helped to hear that I'm not the only one who actually felt a little bit of relief after my mom passed. That was really hard for me to uh, come to grips with because we were so tired with her treatment and everything um, that there was a piece of me that was relieved. And that was really hard for me to come to grips with because I thought it meant that I wasn't sad that she was gone or it negated all of the other feelings I felt when really it was just coexisting along with I'm relieved and I wish she were still here. Um, And I say that because I heard other people say that. And that was probably one of the most important pieces of information that I needed to hear from other people, that it was normal to feel a little bit of relief and that it didn't mean that I was 
okay that she was gone. Gosh, uh, what else? I did go to therapy. Um, I am a, I'm a therapist and I think it's best practice for me to just always be in therapy. So that's kind of a thing that's a part of my life. Um, definitely helps me live a little bit more authentically. I also learned how to give my emotions space. There were a lot of times where I didn't feel like crying or I was worried that if I would cry, then it would just swallow me whole and I would never come out of it. And so I would actually set a timer sometimes for my, for my feelings. <laughs> um, I would, I would, there would be times where I just couldn't, I just felt like I couldn't hold it anymore. And I would set a timer for five minutes and just let myself rage or let myself cry or whatever. And then when the timer was done, I went on with my day and it was actually really helpful for me and made, wow. yeah, it may That's not have been the most authentic thing that I did, but, um, but it was more than just bottling it completely. And that was really helpful. Um, I also have had, I, I think also making meaning out of the pain has been really helpful. Um, in my work as a therapist, I have been able to help other people with their grief, and that feels like a really wonderful way to honor my mom. And, um, mm. and I have people that remember her with me, which is really nice. I get to meet up with some of her friends sometimes when we talk about her. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's beautiful. I love um, mm-hmm. giving meaning um, mm-hmm. to the pain. Um, the, be- the best thing I ever heard about grief, the best way to explain it, is that grief is ex- is an expression mm-hmm. of love. I got that That's from um, grief. Share, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and that really like you're like oh <laughs> when you I feel like <laughs> when you talked about finding people that were also relieved, I, you know, heard yeah. that, oh, oh, my God, just that deep sigh, like, oh, my God, I'm not alone. Oh, my God, yes. it's not just me. I One of the big things about this podcast is because I want people to understand you're not alone and the relief you feel, the connection you feel, the humanness mm-hmm. you feel when you are knowing that you're not alone and you can relate to other people with similar experiences. They don't have to be mm-hmm. exactly the same, um, but it's very similar. I think I'm going to use your idea of my clients about um, yeah. the timer. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think that's a good way to get people started. I figured. Um, okay, you don't, because I heard that <laughs> often, like people just want to get into there I don't want to be depressed or I don't want to let these feelings out because I'm going to be depressed I'm going to be anxious I'm never going to be able to get out of it and I'm like well actually when you get into it, it out. Actually helps it. <laughs> yeah but I like well, the timer I think I'm it felt like a really great timer. compromise uh in between not expressing anything at all and feeling like I was going to fall completely <laughs> into the emotion but again it was yeah. the way that if going back to that house metaphor if the, if grief is a room in my house it it was a way for me to at least open that door um, and not completely shut that room off from the rest of my house. Cause then that, of course it's, you know, it affects the rest of the house. So I would run into the grief room for five minutes and then run back out and shut the door. <laughs> but at least it was acknowledging that it was there. And eventually I was able to become a little bit more friends, a little bit more acquainted with my grief room. Um, 
once I figured out it wasn't so scary to go inside. Yeah. Do you, um, I love that mental metaphor. Have you like trademarked that? <laughs> I heard it from someone else. Very rarely do you get like a Melissa oh. original. So if I ever give you one, I'll let you know. <laughs> well, whoever done that, that's great. Um, I love that metaphor. It really makes it easier, you know, to understand. Do you have any words of encouragement or, you know, just some some tips for those people who may be having a loved one, especially mm-hmm. a parent that you know, they're caring for and they don't know what way it's going to go. And then people who, you know, have lost a loved one, especially. Yeah, I've got a few, but the first thing that comes to mind was, um, I think I mentioned during, during, uh, my mom's treatment, I was in grad school and I went to my, uh, one of my very first classes in one of the semesters and the professor said, uh, gets up there and says, okay, I want you all to get B's in this class because you're going to learn how to do self-care and balance. And I am a very type A personality and that does not fly with me. So I was very, uh, I kind of laughed and internally I was like, ha, that's great. That's really funny. Like I'm, I'm taking care of my mom. I'm working. I'm doing my internship. I'm in grad school. I'm married. Like, yeah, right. Where is time for me? And one of the assignments was to schedule 30 minutes where we did absolutely nothing that we didn't want to do. And that was so hard Mm. for me because I had so many things that I needed to do um, that even taking 30 minutes felt like everything was going to fall apart. And so I, I actually, it's so horrible. I stood in my kitchen staring at a sink full of dishes that needed to be washed for the whole 30 minutes. (laughs) But I didn't didn't do the dishes. And not everything fell apart. And I was, you know, able to move on and get done. I know we all hear the self-care phrase thrown around like willy-nilly all the time. I really found out how completely essential it was through that process. I was totally burnt out. I was running on empty for so long that I couldn't even do 30 minutes of nothing. I just sat there and looked at the dishes. Um, It felt like such autopilot and that is such a mindless way to live. And I found myself not being able to enjoy the times that I did have with my mom where we weren't doing doctor's appointments and medication because I was so wrapped up in my, um, my to-do list and everything that had to get done. So, um, you know, I ended up actually asking for help and I asked one of my uh, family friends to come stay with my mom for a weekend so that my husband and I could get away for our anniversary. Uh, probably one of the best things I could have done for me and my mom's relationship during that time. Um, cause she needed a break from me too. <laughs> we were together all the time. Uh, I think I was getting on her nerves. I could tell. Um, so self-care, ask for help. I know it's hard. I know it's vulnerable and it's probably one of the best things that you can do for you and your loved one. Um, yeah, that's the biggest one. Okay. Yeah. That's the biggest ones. Any, um, like, um, books or resources, podcasts or anything that help? Yeah. Um, I am a big fan of Cheryl Strayed. I don't know if you know who that is. She was the one who wrote the book Wild. 
and uh, the movie Wild was about her. We actually have very similar stories. Her mom got lung cancer and was a non-smoker uh, the same age, and we were actually the same age when, our, when both of our mothers got diagnosed. Um, so I naturally found uh, her work interesting, and she has a wonderful podcast uh, with Steve Allman called Dear Sugars. Um, neither of them are therapists, but you can tell they've been to a lot of therapy (laughs) and, um, it has really helped me not just in grief, but in a lot of other areas of life. Um, but there definitely is some, some grief work in those podcasts. That was a really good, uh, really good resource for me at the time. I think it really was just anything that would get my mind, uh, you know, into my body again and into being grounded, um, which for me is reading. So I just love reading books in general, but whatever that happens to be for the person I think is, is also best. The other resource that I was thinking of now that I just finished reading that I think is really helpful as far as authenticity goes, is, is called, it's called Burnout. Uh, unlocking the stress cycle and it's geared toward women, but it's an excellent book on how to uh, deal with our stress cycle and our emotions. And it definitely can relate into the grief process too. So that's a fantastic book. Thank you. And I just wanted to add one resource, which mm-hmm. is Grief Share for those who are in in America. I'm not sure if it's worldwide, but it's a, I think it's a 16 week or 13 week program. I always get wrong how long, but it is amazing. I've done it myself and I did it when I didn't want to do it. And I was angry. But um, it's definitely, I actually refer people more to that than I tell them to do grief therapy, to go see an individual therapist. I actually encourage them more to do the grief share because it is a group. And then I've told other people and everybody who comes back to me and does it, and it's like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. It was amazing. So I definitely share that resource and that will also be on the show notes. And Melissa, where can we shower you with love? So I'm on Instagram um, at Coates Counseling and Coates is C-O-A-T-S. Everybody always puts an E in my name. (laughs) Um, My website is CoatesCounseling.com. I'm about to open my second location in Atlanta as far as my private practice goes. And then um, so you can definitely see more about that on my website when it's up and running and live. And I'll be posting more about that on Instagram as well. And I also have a Facebook page, Coats Counseling. So all of my events and workshops and everything are updated on those platforms and everything about my practice. Cool. And we'll put that in the show notes. I have one question about that. You did um, a webinar, which I did not get to see. Um, and I recently also went to her continuing education on uh, for sex therapy, where you had one about um, sex mm-hmm. in the church. Will you be doing that webinar again? Uh, yeah, mostly for for women um, who are who grew up in the evangelical purity movement, um, or basically just had any shaming messages uh, from religion and the church around sex. Um, I think that again, as you've heard me say, I grew up in the church and it was a great community for me. And so a lot of women who really struggle with shame, with sexual issues, tend to not reach out to that community because it is still so stigmaed. They're afraid of losing their community. And so I aim to give a, vo- a, a space and a voice to women who feel like they can't 
express that for fear of losing their community, where we get to talk about the real issues of why some of those shaming messages didn't just go away when they got married or, you know, like, like we're kind of told. So yes, I will be holding that webinar again. Um, I'm hoping to potentially turn it into a, a support group as well. Um, so if anybody right. is in the Atlanta area and thinks that could be useful, feel free to reach out to me. Yes, please do. Okay. Well, thank you so much on this podcast and it's been a pleasure. If you connected with what you just heard, please subscribe, rate and review the podcast. You can stay connected by following our Instagram, Authentic Wednesday Podcast and visiting our website, AuthenticWednesday.com. Remember, authenticity is a journey, not a destination.